Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Right, Parables Volume 2, here we go. Um, my goal today is to lead you into the forest that is Jesus's parables, give you something of a map, and then just abandon you there. Does that sound all right? It's a good forest to be lost in. But the parables make up about a third of everything recorded in the Gospels of what Jesus taught, and so they're incredibly important for us to dwell on and to grapple with. Um, I want to introduce the series and give us some kind of wider thinking around parables, but I also want to get to one particular parable today. And so if it's helpful, I'm just saying this partly for myself to help me. Today's talk's a bit like a funnel, all right? We're gonna start at the top, nice and wide over something. We're gonna go down a layer, be a little bit more focused, and then at the end, we're gonna get right to the bottom and focus in on one thing. Is that helpful? Those of you who like analogies, there we go. Here's my funnel talk on the parables. Um, To approach the parables at all, the first thing we need to understand is what Jesus's basic message was, what his overarching sweep is. And I almost guarantee if you were to go and ask a whole bunch of people out, just, I don't know, go up the high street today and ask them, what's Christianity about? Almost nobody would probably say what it actually is. I really do think this. Now, I like to be interactive. Does anybody want to take a stab in one sentence what Jesus's basic message is? The kingdom of God, Adam, come on, he's doing a master's in theology. Um, (laughs) Repent, Alan Buckland got it in Woking, you'll be pleased to know. So our operational director is also good with his scripture, so that's good. But Jesus' basic message, the way he's presented in all synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very clearly is this, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news, the kingdom has come near. That is the one primary message that Jesus preached. And I would argue that everything else that he did and said came under that one wider bracket. Eugene Peterson said, kingdom is what Jesus reveals patiently, but insistently, word by word, act by act. The kingdom is what Jesus came to tell us about. It's the persistent and the irresistible message that at the heart of everything that he did and said. And when we think of many of the parables, which I'm sure lots of us will be familiar with, a lot of them start, hi, the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Parabole, the Greek word that is uh, parable, It literally means to throw down beside, to compare. And so in the parables, what Jesus is basically doing is taking everything that you think you know about the way the world works, the way God and humans work, the way sin works, the way all of it works, all your ideas about that stuff, and he's throwing it down on the ground. And then he's taking the kingdom of heaven and he's throwing it down on the ground beside it. And he's saying, come, let's have a look. Do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? So at the basic level, that's what the parables are doing. Now, of course, some of them are not so obviously concerned with the kingdom. Think of the rich man and Lazarus. It's more about wealth and our approach to that and grace and all of that stuff. But they still, I think, kingdom is the grand, uh, kind of the meta theme of all of the parables. So that's the top of the funnel. We have to have that in our mind when we go into approaching the parables. They are essentially about 
the kingdom of heaven. But why parables? Why these strange, eccentric, short stories? Why is this a third of Jesus' teaching? Well, Jesus was not a systematic, logical theologian in the way that we are so used to. Now, Jesus was what I would call a metaphorical theologian. And so what he did was he took stories and he took metaphors and he took the Hebrew scriptures, right, the Old Testament, and he, he put all of that into a mixing pot and he gave us these analogies, these parables, these ways of conceiving of the world that are much more relatable to us, right, than sitting and reading uh, Thomas Aquinas or something, although I do recommend that as well. It's good to have a healthy diet. Um, maybe the parable should come with something like that, like these should be consumed as part of a you know, healthy diet in the scriptures. So why parables? Well, I want to offer you three reasons, and there's lots more, but I want to offer you three main reasons why I think Jesus chose to use parables. The first one is this. Stories are important. I would argue that stories are as necessary as oxygen. Can you imagine a world without stories? If you could, you could probably write a really good story about it. Do you like that? Um, I'm listening to Lord of the Rings on Audible at the minute. Um, for those mega fans out there, give me a whoop. Come on. Yeah, all right. Um, Andy Serkis, the actor who played Gollum um, and King Kong and a bunch of other uh, sort of roles like that, he has recorded all three Lord of the Rings books and The Silmarillion and The Hobbit on Audible. And he's absolutely amazing at accents and voices. And so it's, for me, it's been so exciting. It's like this whole new way of, to experience this world that I'm already really familiar with. But to enter Tolkien's Middle Earth, it's like you suspend reality and you step in to this world that is so vivid and so rich in imagination, so deep in history and detail. There's so many layers to what he wrote. I mean, it really is, to me, I find it, still find it quite staggering. And it's a world that I love to visit again and again, or there and back again. Come on. Just like, I just like to make sure the Tolkien fans are out there. But, but stories like, you know, Lord of the Rings, it's an invitation at its heart to step in to a different world, to engage your imagination, and then to begin to allow that world to become a lens through which you view our own world. You know, a really good story can illuminate things about the real world that you wouldn't have otherwise thought of. That's what a brilliant story does. And the parables are, are like that, and the parables are... They're not simple moral tales. Like you can't just extract the truth from the parable and discard the wrapping. So if you you know buy a pack of burgers, it's barbecue season. We all know that the good stuff is the meat inside, and when you're done, you what do you do? You throw out the packaging or you recycle it. I hope. Um, and so the, something like the tale of the boy who cried wolf is a bit like that. The boy and the wolf and the villagers—they're just packaging for essentially a very simple you know tale. Don't lie because you know. When it, when it comes time to be truthful, people might not believe you. And so the, the rest of it discard, um, is discardable, but the, 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 you just take that out of it. The parables are not like that. They're not just a delivery system for some kind of truth that we can extract. N.T. Wright says it like this. Parables are not simply information about the kingdom, but are part of the means of bringing it to birth. And so when Jesus tells us stories and when he brings the Hebrew scriptures in, when he conjures all of this stuff together and gives us something um, to, to, to reflect on, we can't just take it out and sort of do away with it. There's something absolutely essential about the poems and the stories in scripture that we must keep coming back to. That's why this, the Bible is just so important for us as we navigate the modern 
world. They're ancient stories full of fresh truth. And so today, as we look at a parable and over the coming weeks, every bit as much as the first day that Jesus was standing in a boat on a lake telling people these stories, he is using the parables still today to bring his kingdom to birth on earth. There's still something very powerful about these stories, and so we do well to listen to them. So the first reason is that stories are important. The second reason Jesus uses parables is that he knows we're not very good listeners. Now, listening, truly listening, is one of the hardest things that you and I do in our lives every day. Now, does anybody have young children in here? Can I get an amen if young children are not very good at listening, right? Half the problems that arise between them is because they're not listening to each other. One of them wants to play the game this way. The other one just doesn't listen. And then inevitably, tears ensue a few minutes later. And as a parent, it's like you just daddy, 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 daddy. And eventually, you just the, the ability to actually listen properly is just sort of diminished over time. And you have to choose, I'm going to listen now. Yes? Um, and I'm not a very good listener, I'll be honest. I'm usually, when I'm like, I don't know, making coffee in the morning, I'm thinking about the use of the word parabole in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and I'm, I'm thinking about how maybe Tolkien had thought about that, and then when he was writing that bit about the, the minds of more, you know, that's where my brain goes, that's what I'm like. And so Andrea, bless her, like, I must be very hard to live with. I'm, I'm making coffee or whatever, she's getting the kids ready, and she'll say something like, Peter, could you go get, insert something here, from upstairs? Yes, dear. Parabole, minds of Moria, etc. <laughs> And then inevitably, a minute later, Peter, could you go get that now? Yes, dear. And sort of, you know, run upstairs. And I'm halfway up the stairs, and I go, I have no idea what I'm supposed to, supposed to be getting. And, and I have, that happens every day, doesn't it? Yeah, you, you can be honest. It's a vulnerable moment. I'm not very good at, at, at listening. Um, when I was at ACM, which is the reason I moved here in the first place, the music college, um, you, you got assessed in various ways. So you got assessed on your practical performance, live performance. No problem. That's why we become musicians, right? You want to play. No problem. Music theory, just learn the stuff, write it out, right? No problem. Do you know the test that everybody stressed out about the most? The listening test, okay? Really difficult. You sit down with a piece of paper and they start playing something and you're asked questions about it to test if you can really listen to what's going on. Can you separate out these counter melodies and the harmony and can you tell the tempo and the, all of this stuff? That's actually a really difficult skill as a musician. Listening is hard work. And of course, those are kind of anecdotal, and they're, they're just one layer of listening. But we also know, right, when people are trying to communicate, us, communicate to us on a more deep level, maybe they're trying to tell us a hurt that they have, or maybe they're trying to give us feedback about something, we have to enter a different, different type of listening, don't we? It's listening that we have to pay attention to and choose to act on. And what often happens is we enter defense mode, right? We start building our, our defense. We're not really listening anymore. It's very, very difficult to truly listen to another person, to maybe flesh this out in another way. How many times have you sat down to pray? And it's all good to start with, dear Lord, just uh, I want to thank you today for the gift of this and thank you for that. And then what happens is about a minute later, you regain consciousness and you, re you realize that you have gone off somewhere else. Does anybody resonate with that? Don't, don't make me feel alone here, right? That's, that is what happens, I'd say, 75% of the time that I sit down to pray, and I have to sort of pull myself back in again, and go, I'm going to focus this time. Or, or the flip side, when you're trying to make space to listen to God, what happens? You start, Lord, speak to me today. I just want, you know, today's bread. What do you want to say to me, Lord? And inevitably, about three minutes later, you regain consciousness, and you realize that you've been thinking about all manner of other things. It's very difficult to listen, to be attentive, and so Jesus 
knows this. And so he uses these parables because they're short, right? These are not Dostoevsky novels. Some of them are one verse. Many of them are three or four verses. The one today is actually one of the longer ones, and it's not long. So he uses these short stories, but they're stories, right? And stories are memorable. Good stories are memorable. If I was to recite to you a string of digits, like 35 numbers in a row in random orders, probably nobody in this room would be able to remember them. But if I tell you a one-minute, two-minute story that has a couple of characters and it has a plot and it has a location, you probably would remember it in a week. You might even remember it in a year if it was a good one. So stories have a way of embedding um, themselves in us that the other kinds of information doesn't. They tease us into listening to them, right? And so Jesus knows that we're bad listeners. And so he gives us these short stories to reflect on and to dwell on. The, the final reason I want to offer as to why he gave us these particular stories is this. Parables are puzzling, okay? They're not easy to understand. In a way, I think, Adam, I think there was a degree of naivety between you and I when we thought about this series, because I think on one level, it's like, it's the summer. Well, just the parables, that's a nice, that's like a, that's like a nice thing to do in the summer, isn't it? But in reality, the more you dive into them, the more difficult they get. I read this week that parables are a novice preacher's dream and an expert preacher's nightmare. I don't know where that leaves me, somewhere in the middle, I think. But there is a degree of truth in this, right? There is this one kind of surface level meaning, and you can extract that. But there's a whole other world of things going on the more you deep. They're very, very deep pools. And so that kind of idea that we might tell children or you might hear in Sunday school, you know, parables are just earthly stories about heavenly realities and these sort of neat twee ways that we try to approach them, they just won't do because the more we engage with them and the more we listen to them, the more complexity and nuance we realize is actually going on there. Disney stories are not like that, okay? So things that are written for children, like Disney movies, they're very simple, they don't have a lot of complexity or nuance. If you're an adult sitting watching a Disney movie, you know, that, you know the classic thing where there's somebody that you're set up to think is a good guy, but actually they're a bad guy. In a Disney movie, how quickly can you spot that as an adult? Like it's, it's obvious from like the first time they enter the screen, you know, they've got like really dark black hair and they sort of have pale skin, you know, the classic sort of, um, I'm thinking of the mum entangled, that's kind of the, the archetype I'm going for. Um, so Disney stories don't have a lot of complexity to them. Okay, pretty flat, just one surface level meaning. Here's an interesting tidbit. This is courtesy of Robbie Back. This is not related to the sermon. It's just interesting. Tolkien, right, before he died, when he was, when he was sort of negotiating about who might be able to buy the movie rights for Lord of the Rings, had a clause in there that said, Walt Disney cannot ever buy the rights to Lord of the Rings because he thought Disney movies were just so bland. I think he used a, a nauseating lack of depth <laughs> is the word that he used. Um, and so, you know, parables are not that. They are not this just, you know, there's a top line melody that you just hear and you kind of move on. They're very complex and multi-layered and they mean more and they mean other than they can seem to say on the surface. And they can mean different things to different people. And so where we like neat and we like clear and we like to know who the bad guy is, Jesus, in his infinite love and mercy and wisdom towards us, he knows what we really need even more than we do. So we don't need simple stories that we can extract little truths from. We need these complex things because what they do is they force us to listen, okay? They ask something of us. The parables actually demand that you listen to them, 
okay? You can, you can refuse to listen, but if you want to engage with them, you have to enter a space where you become receptive and you allow your imagination to be awakened. His goal in the parables was not to provide us with clarity and not to provide us with systematic, logical instructions about the kingdom of God. His goal was to tease us into active thought. Check this quote out. For Jesus, the meaning of God's kingdom is a radical mystery. Even as he tells people about it, it remains permanently intractable to all attempts to fully grasp it. Jesus did not use the parables to explain everything to people's satisfaction, but rather to call into question their previous understanding. In other words, the parables are trying to upset people's existing ideas as well as provide them with new ones. If at the end of a parable you feel warm and fuzzy, or you think, oh, that was brilliant, you're probably not listening to it correctly, okay? You should be feeling like, ooh, what, is that? what does that mean? Where does that leave me? You know, what do I need to do now? So to wrap all of that together, Jesus knows the importance of stories in the world and informing our imaginations, but he also knows that we're not very good at listening, so he gives us these short and very puzzling stories that actually force us to engage with them at a deeper level. That's my 10 cents on the parables. Is that helpful? Okay, fantastic. Want another sip of water. And so what I'd like to do today is um, kick off this series by looking at the parable of the sower, one of the most well-known. And um, the reason I've chosen this one is because this is a parable about parables. It says in verse 13, you'll see it in a minute when we read it, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So there's something about this one that is actually illuminating and instructive for the rest of them. And the second reason I've chosen this one is that this is also a parable about listening. And so I've highlighted in the scriptures that will come up in a moment. Every time you see a highlighted word, it's the same Greek word, and it gets translated either as listen or hear. And in these 20 verses, it appears eight times. And in Mark 4, the chapter as a whole, it appears, I don't know, 12 or 15 like, times. It's, it's the fundamental kind of theme of Mark chapter 4 is Jesus trying to ask us, do we have ears to hear? So this is a parable about parables and a parable about listening. So it seems like a good one to kick off with. Um. Let's read it. Mark 4, verses 1 to 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the end of the parable, but then we get this little behind-the-scenes moment. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. 
But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That's Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of God. Just quick exegetical footnote. Um, I don't want to linger on this, but who thinks it seems pretty harsh what Jesus says in the middle? Does it kind of catch you? Like, it's almost like he's trying for them not to understand. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And it's actually, if you go, this is one of the parables that appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's relayed slightly differently in each one. And it's actually softened in the others somewhat. But on one level, I think the reason Jesus, you know, Mark recorded him doing it like this is because just the, the, the danger of what Jesus was actually saying would have probably had him crucified much quicker <laughs> in the Roman Empire, right? Because of that. And so I think that's on one, one level the reason why Mark seems very, it seems very, sort of abrupt, doesn't it, um, Jesus' response there. Um, on one level, this parable is just Jesus telling his own story. He's wandering about, right, the first century, scattering seed. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom, and he's telling us that there's different ways of receiving that in the human heart. And one of the unusual things about this parable is that we then get this kind of quite full explanation of the parable, and he offers his own interpretation some of the guesswork's eliminated for us, therefore, in the parable of the sower, unlike a lot of the others. We're told that the seed is the word. And again, the word there in Greek is logos, which elsewhere is used as the title for Jesus. Um, and I think it's fair to say, therefore, that that word represents the gospel. It represents the message of the kingdom. It represents every word that pours forth from the mouth of God. That means, therefore, that the sower must represent Christ himself because the only place that the word of God can come from is the mouth of God. If you think about it, this parable is itself one of the seeds that's being talked about, okay? Anytime the kingdom is being proclaimed, therefore, it's a seed. And I want to offer you just a couple of insights on this parable that I find really helpful. The first one is this. The sower is very generous, Right? Isway could do a much better job at explaining this part, but if you want to plant a beautiful garden, you don't just scatter seeds and bulbs all around you. Like, imagine trying to plant a dahlia on, like, the cement. Like, it doesn't make sense. You just, you know, so it seems very wasteful on one level what the sower is doing. He's just walking around kind of carelessly tossing this stuff around. It's not a very good way to go about planting a crop. But... I actually think it's quite reflective of the word of God. If we understand the word of God to mean any seed that indicates God. This time of the year, driving around the south of England, the trees, right, the flowers, the beauty. Like, do you ever just feel kind of overwhelmed by the abundance of life that is in the earth? 
Okay, that's kind of what I think is being evoked here. And it makes me think of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, right? Night to night reveals knowledge. And then it says, there is no sound. No voice is heard from them. There's nothing audible. And yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Okay, the word of God is all around us. And so that's what I think is being represented here. The sower is very generous, right? The seeds are all around. Now, they're seeds. They're not full trees. They're not screaming in your face. You have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. But nonetheless, the sower is very generous. And the second reflection then that I think about is that the seed is very powerful, okay? It doesn't give us ratios, unfortunately, for those of us that like numbers, but let's just say that 25% of the seed is the one that's scattered on the good soil, right? A quarter of the seed is on good soil. But how much fruit does that seed bear? 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. Okay, so the seed is very powerful. And for me, this evokes Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. Listen to this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my, from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The seed is very powerful. And for the first century Jewish hearers of this parable, Jesus would have known that that passage would have immediately been evoked in their imagination. There's very obvious connections there, right, between the seed and the sower. Man shall not live by bread alone is another thing that that's made me think of, but, but from every mouth that comes from the word of God. So the, the sower is generous and the seed is powerful. And there's lots of other... Um, unwrapping we could do and I think in the future weeks when the speakers don't sort of give you the high level view of the parables as well they'll probably go into some more of the cultural detail that you, you can you can mine these for so much extra insight when you look at the historical context into which they were shared but I'm going to leave that aside for today and I want to talk about the four types of soil which represent four different ways that the human heart just as much back then as now can receive and respond to the word of God and so I'm going to walk through them and just offer some comments as we go through it. And I want you to be asking yourself the question, do I find this type of soil in myself? And I don't think this is a simplistic thing. I think to some level, all of us will have all four types of soil present in our heart. But we will have more of a leaning towards this one in this season of our lives, etc. And so I want us, as we go through this, almost to enter a bit more of a reflective space now that I've given you lots of information about this. Ask yourself which type of soil is in my heart? Holy Spirit, I pray as I walk through this part that you would help us to be people who listen to you. I pray that we would hear the word that you're speaking to us. The first type of ground is the, the path. Verse 15, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, the evil one immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. This I'm going to call the hardened heart. This might be someone who says, I'm just fine, thanks. I don't need heaven to invade earth. I don't need Jesus to change my life. I don't need any of the stuff you're offering. I'm just fine. Thank you very much. There's a total lack of receptivity. 
the chances are there's so many other influences going on in that heart that they don't even have the time of day for the word of God. And what happens with the evil one is that his goal is to make a hardened heart even harder and an embittered heart even more embittered and a heart that is disappointed even more disappointed. That's, that's, that's the way he works, right? And we all know people like this. I can think of people that I know who are like this and often it's because of the things they've gone through, the circumstances of their life. And sometimes it's just their obstinate attitude to anything that is totally different and would require them shaking up their whole worldview. This is the hardened heart that will not let the gospel in. The rocky ground in verses 16 and 17, these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This I'm going to call the shallow heart. This is the heart that initially hears it and gets excited and they want, you know, they want the forgiveness and the peace and the joy and the intimacy with the Father and all of the good stuff that is, of course, part of the word of God. But then what happens is they also discover that Jesus demands their very life and he requires self-control and he requires discipline and he requires that you die to the flesh, okay? Death to self is not a very attractive message, right, <laughs> to, to win people. But that is part of the gospel. And so this is the shallow heart that, that wants the good stuff but isn't willing to stick it out when the time or when the going gets tough. And what happens when the kingdom of heaven, remember that all of this is happening in the context of a parable where the kingdom of heaven is being set alongside this world. And what happens every time the kingdom of heaven and this world are laid alongside each other, a confrontation occurs, okay? Those two things cannot coexist peacefully because the kingdom of heaven is pushing out all of the darkness from this world, and that means things will get messy and painful, okay? And so a confrontation of worlds always occurs. And that's what happens when we, we receive the things of God with a shallow heart. We allow the things of this world to just immediately push out the word of God. The next type of grind, verses 18 and 19 these are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This I'm going to call the cluttered heart, okay? I've tried to go big on the garden this year. Um, I realize I'm moving slightly from grain and seed to, to flowers and plants here. But I, uh, I planted loads. Isway helped me plant loads of gladioli bulbs, right? Loads of them. And then I put in the lovely rhododendron near them. But I didn't realize how big the rhododendron would grow this year. It just went like, poof, got like twice as wide within a few months. And what happened is the gladioli that had started coming up, they're now going like this and they're getting pushed out. And actually yesterday I just had to admit defeat and cut a few of them down because it wasn't going to last. So what's happening is there's a competition going on for the sunlight and for the water in the ground and for the space to grow. And that's, ha that's what's happening with the seed that is sown among thorns, right? It's being edged out. It's not the dominant thing that is growing in that patch of land. And so this is the cluttered heart. Worries of this world. We live in the edge of anxiety, am I right? Riches that trick us. And the word deceitful is the exact correct word to be used here because riches and wealth are deceitful because what they do is they tell us 
that they will give us salvation and they will make us happy. And so if I can just go on that one more holiday, if I can just buy that new thing, if I can just have that experience, all of the, the things that are afforded to us through wealth, if we allow those to start to dictate the direction of our lives, what inevitably happens is the gospel, the word of the kingdom can be pushed aside and get choked. If you have ears to hear, listen. And then the final type of soil is the good soil. This is the fruitful disciple. Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. And they bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And it's interesting, the first three soils, it just says they hear the word and then this happens. With this one, it says they hear the word and accept it. And that word can also mean welcome it, okay? So this isn't just an audible hearing. This is an act of listening that leads to a change in behavior and a change in mind and attitude. They hear the word and they allow it to enter in and to become the dominant thing that is growing in their mind and in their heart and in their life. And these are the ones who bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Even after Jesus' interpretation of this parable, how many of you are still left with questions? Right? That's the whole point. He's leaving us with more questions than answers intentionally. He's not doing it to spite us or because he doesn't want us. He wants us to, to, to grapple with this stuff. He wants us to allow these questions to sink in. And he wants us to go from here today still thinking about the parable of the sower. And one of the questions that you could be left with is, but, but like who wins in the end? Is it the soil or is it the seed? Like what happens to all of that seed? And this is where we have to remember that we read this stuff on this side of the cross. And the answer to that question, you know, who wins? Is it the soil or the seed? I would say, look around the room. How many hardened hearts has Jesus softened in here? How many shallow hearts has he changed? How many cluttered hearts is he slowly, gradually, daily making more space in for his gospel? And so no matter how discouraged you may feel when you think, oh man, I'm, I'm really the cluttered heart at the minute, remember that the seed is very powerful and the sower is very generous. And as I was just praying last night about this and how I wanted to land this message, I just kept thinking of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that weighs us down. Let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race marked out for us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The sower is very generous and the seed that he sows is very powerful. I wonder if the band could come up. I'd love us to take um, just a moment in stillness and in quiet. The invitation of Jesus today is to become better listeners and so I pray now, Holy Spirit, as we take a moment to reflect on this, you would give us ears to hear what you're speaking to us.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for this parable. We thank you that you love us enough to give us something to grapple with and to make us engage our minds and our hearts. And I want to pray today, Spirit of God, that for those of us who feel like our hearts have become hardened or calloused in different ways, that you would bring a new softness. For those of us who feel like we have become shallow in our hearts in different areas, I pray by the Spirit of God you would bring a new depth. And for those of us who feel like our hearts are cluttered today by so many other things, I pray in your grace that you would give us space again in our hearts, that you would give us focus, that you would help your gospel to become the dominant thing. We thank you for the evidence of your seed all around us, Lord. May we have ears to hear.